The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. We're looking at 1 John 2, verses 18 through 27. This is a passage where he's talking about antichrists. What is an antichrist? Now, don't get discouraged because we're not going to spend a lot of time uh, explaining our eschatology. We're just going to be looking at the fact that John warns about antichrists that were loose in the land when he was writing. And he's telling us how to discriminate between the true and the false by means of tests. And he mentions three tests. The first test is found in seven through 2.6, and it's the test of righteousness. Do they live a righteous life? So the second test is the test of love in chapter 2, verse 7 through 17. And the third is this one, which is the, the test of belief. Do we believe the truth? Do we actually believe the word of God? That's in verses 18 through 27 of chapter 2. And this is what we are looking at. John tells us everything that we need to know about Antichrist, and we need to know them, you need to know them, and I need to know them, uh, why they depart from us, because that's what he says here, and uh, what they deny, because that's what he's complaining about. They're denying certain things. And then how can you avoid being deceived by them, verses 24 through 27 of chapter 2. Because of the last hour has struck, uh, it's really the last hour. Is, is that really the truth? Is it the last hour? Well, let me quote to you from First Peter chapter 4, verse 7. He says, the end of all things has already drawn near. It isn't, it is drawing near, it has already drawn near. And uh, therefore, be sober and alert for the purpose of prayers. What, a, what an admonition. Be, be uh, alert and sober for the purpose of prayers. Now, let me just tell you that the, what he's emphasizing there is getting together with fellow believers it's quite literally prayer meetings. When we get together with believers to pray about what's going on in the lives of other saints that are going through difficulties and so forth, we're to pray. That song that you listened to that he said was from me was, uh, at least I mentioned this song to him before, that's uh, Zach Williams, and he is he sings in prisons is where he primarily sings, and uh, he's right at home, you can tell. I once had a pastor here in town tell me they were vitally involved in a prison ministry because they understood that their future elders were going to come from there. <laughs> I don't know what he meant by that exactly, but um, that would be quite a perspective. I don't think the guys that are looking for an associate pastor have gone to the prison yet to check anybody out. But what's going on here, he's explained to us the truth about these antichrists so they'll understand these why these things happen, why do they depart from us, verses 18 through 21. And as he says, it's because it's the last hour. They're living in the last hour. Now, it's interesting that uh, the Bible actually says we're living in the last hour, not just the last days, but the last hour. And the reason is what's going on. Three primary views. Either John was mistaken, that's probably not possible, but you know, perhaps he just made a mistake, or he's meaning simply the last kind of hour, those times that were as, as widespread, that were just as widespread as heresy, massing its forces against the Christian faith and threatening its survival. This is what Westcott believed he was talking about. John was stating on biblical theological grounds that the last hour had begun. This does not say when the hour would end, of course. It may last longer than we think. And uh, we're all split up probably in different groups that uh, have certain numbers for for the days of, of some events like the Great Tribulation, whether there is one. And then uh, in Mark 13, 22, Jesus 
uh, describe this as a period of uh, tribulation and apostasy, which is going to precede the end, precede his second coming. There's going to be a time of great apostasy, people that is moving away from the truth of the gospel. We certainly have seen that in our day. And then John was stating on biblical theological grounds that the last hour had already begun. It doesn't say when the last hour is going to end. So Jesus, he says there's going to be this period of tribulation and apostasy that's going to precede the end, so things are going to get bad. I've had a couple of calls from my brother, and he's convinced that the, the Lord's coming any day, any moment, and it's because things are so bad. I don't know if he's right or not. I don't set dates and because I've always been wrong, and everybody I know has always been wrong. Uh, some guys published books, made money on the books, but totally missed the day. So in Second Thessalonians 2, Paul talks about the final period of judgment. It's going to begin with the unveiling of the man of lawlessness and a total outbreak of lawlessness. But now the spirit of lawlessness is at work, he says. He's already working. And, and uh, that's sin at its depth, is lawlessness. And it was because there are many antichrists, John says, on the scene that John could affirm that he knew it was the last hour. Some believe that's what's going on. John saw the powers of darkness closing ranks. The coming of the many antichrists proved it to, that it was the last hour, he thought, perhaps. A last desperate stand on the part of Christ's enemies was expected before the consummation. There would be a great war, and there's going to be a lot of conflict that's going to hit the whole world. And so what's going on here? What's, what's still true? Well, still, what is still true? Things are bad, right? <laughs> they really are. In fact, it's interesting talking to different people about the present, this present uh, time we're going through with the uh, pandemic. There's some people think it's the worst thing that's ever happened that they've had to go through. And I understand that. You know, we, we can't set the times when we're going to have a meeting, for example, in the church. We don't even know when we're going to get occupancy in our building, the, the church building I'm talking about. Um, and uh, we don't have any idea. And it's kind of depressing because they won't even tell us when the final inspection is going to be. We don't know if it's going to be a month or two months or what it's going to be. And then we have to go through the process of trying to get the state of California to allow us, or, or the county, I guess it is, that would allow us to meet inside our building. Because I don't think any of you, you none of you look like you could stand the cold, uh, us meeting out in the cold. And so we're going to try to get approval from them to be able to meet inside. I'm sure they're going to have some stipulations that we'll have to keep and so forth. We understand that. So anyway, this this whole thing of an antichrist is simply the antichrist is a personality who shows up in the last days. There's proof that there is uh, many antichrists, and he cites that. What is an antichrist? It's used only by John. It's only used by this author. He uses the word antichrist. Um, and this concept is everywhere else, but it's not that particular word isn't used as Antichrist. In Mark 13, 22, it says, In the last days are going to be marked by many false Christs and false prophets. But he doesn't use the word Antichrist. In First Thessalonians 2, he talks about a man of lawlessness as at work right now. The spirit of Antichrist is now in the world, and we're told that we're living in the last days and in the last hour because of what characterizes the hour now. I, it doesn't mention a pandemic. We, this is hard to live with, isn't it? It's hard to get used to this kind of thing, that everything that you do, you have to come at it from a, a very different kind of approach. But there's a very clear distinction that's been made in all these passages, and that is there is th- are those who go along with the Antichrist or the spiritual leader and those who resist him. And so here he says, but these Antichrists have left us. They've abandoned us. 
2 Corinthians chapter 11, it says their departure was their unmasking. That's how they knew who they were, because they left the people of God. They didn't want to hang around for it. Now, the implications are clear that the saints are going to persevere. The hallmark of the saved is they persevere. They continue through difficult times. In Hebrews chapter 3.14, it talks about the future and final perseverance of the ultimate test of a past participation in Christ. The principle, those who are of his, they stay with him. Uh, believers continue to follow Christ. It's interesting. I grew up in a church that believed you could lose your salvation just like that, maybe every day, in fact. I finally, had a, I had a professor in a college I was going to who said, uh, you know, there are some groups out there who think you can be born again again. And I had never even thought of that. I just assumed, yeah, you could lose it and you could you could get saved again. But he was explaining how what God has, does to us in salvation is unrepeatable in a real sense because it's so glorious. It's so far beyond just a temporary adjustment of life. We do believe that the saints persevere to the very end. We don't mean by that that God's going to save us regardless of what we do. He is going to work in our lives and our lives are going to be marked by his involvement in our lives. So the hallmark of the saved is that they persevere through difficult times, and they will continue to persevere. I remember when I first heard about this, uh, about all that was going on, and churches shutting down and all that, I thought, wow, what about uh, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, especially as the day uh, appears, that people get more and more attuned to this. And People just stop gathering together as God's people. They stop praying together and so forth. But then as things came went on, I understand what we have. We have something very, very difficult to handle, and we have people that are in charge of things that, that we uh, have all kinds of people talking about how, how they have no brain, and they don't know what they're doing and so forth. But uh, I'm telling you, it's a difficult task. I can't even imagine what it would be like to try to organize all of this. And I am grateful for men that um, care enough for us that they're trying to avoid this whole thing and to steer it in a different direction. But we are in the world, but we're not of it. It's just the, the way the world goes doesn't determine how we go. We have a connection with the living God. We are to know him well enough. We know his word, and we know his heart. And so because of that, because we know his, his word and his heart, we can walk in obedience to to Jesus Christ, even in times like this, where we can't even meet as a church. Maybe, you know, a lot of churches now are meeting outside and and things like that, and it's very difficult. But what we can do is that we can follow Christ. We can be committed to him. I think I've mentioned this before. I heard a, a guy who uh, writes a column in the New York Times. I've heard him say this several times. He says, I, I'm not a Christian. I don't believe what Christians believe, but I got to tell you, I'm really impressed with them more than any other group. Because wherever there are troubles in the world, you'll find Christians. They go there right into the midst of it and to help people. And I thought, now that's a great testimony. Because this wasn't from a friend, it was from an enemy. And he's saying, you know, God's people act like God's people at times, and it's a wonderful thing. And so even going through this, I remember seeing a, a video on TV. It was uh, Andy Stanley. It was a friend of his who had the virus. And so they had videotaped the entire thing. And the... Uh, Doctors at first thought he was going to come right through with no problem. And then it got bad. It got really bad. And uh, they told him, we're sure you're going to die. We don't think there's anything we can do about it. Well, he didn't die. He came through it. And what he had was not a bunch of doctors, but all he had was some people who knew how to pray. And they prayed for him. They prayed that God would spare his life. And God did spare his life. 
So Stanley, he took this this way. He took it, this is Andy Stanley. He took it this way. He said, I decided through that experience that I wanted to communicate to this community, to this world, that we care about people, that we preach a gospel that's meant to pierce and penetrate the heart of a person so they would know the kind of love that God has for them and what he's done for them. And so they decided not to even have open meetings in their church building. They have a huge church building, if you've ever seen it. It's massive. It's one of those mega churches. And, and, uh, but they have no meetings in the inside. It's all, they're just, uh, they're meeting in different ways, but uh, they're doing it simply to try to encourage believers. But they realize they can't go against what's really, ha- what God is allowing to happen. He wants them to be concerned about people. And so they pray. That's what they primarily do. They meet to pray for people who are, who are facing these kind of things. I have a sister who has the, has the virus, and I have a, a niece who has the virus. And uh, I pray for them, and I'm so thankful God's brought them through this, and they're in good health and, and strong. And when I, when I hear them talk, it, it just amazes me. I think so much more of them now. They, they are much more spiritually mature than I realize because they were trusting the living God, and he came through for them exactly what they needed. Now, um, what do these antichrists deny? What kind of things should we live for? In verses 22 and 23, it talks about this. and reveals the false teaching of those who departed. They deny that Jesus is the Christ. That is the ultimate apostasy, denying Jesus Christ. They deny that Christ was the Old Testament Messiah. Notice in chapter 4, verse 2, it says, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. But they didn't believe that all the things that are said about him in the word of God. In Second John chapter 7, Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. That was the Old Testament prophecy, that he would be coming in the flesh. He would be born into this world. We know later Gnostics taught that Jesus was born, and then he died as a man. And uh, that it wasn't until after his death that he was again restored to his relationship with the Father. Uh, and it just descended on him at his baptism, and then it left him before the cross. So they deny that Jesus is the Christ or the Son of God. It's a Gnostic Jesus. You, you might run into this in some literature. It talks about the Gnostic Jesus. It's a mere man invested for a brief period of time with divine powers or even adopted into the Godhead. Some of them believe that. But they deny Jesus is the eternal Son of God, possessing two perfect natures, a human nature and a, and a divine nature. He is God in the flesh, and so that's why he is referred to as God many times in the Bible. It's because he actually has a divine nature. And so those who deny the incarnation, that there's one person with two natures, which seems you know, just beyond them, uh, this is exactly what the Bible teaches. He's very God of very God and very man of very man. He is a real man, and he's, he is really God. He experiences what people experience. He gets hungry, he gets thirsty, he gets and all these things, and yet he is God. This is the Son of God who is eternal. And uh, Jesus said that he'd been with the Father from all eternity, but now the Father had brought him into the world, and here's why he did, because he wanted us to know the Father. And this, this is why the Spirit came, so that we would know the Father. The Father has that desire for us, that we would know him, that he wouldn't be a, dense, a, a distant uncle or something. We would know that he is our heavenly Father, and when we speak to him, we do what Jesus said when he told his apostles how to pray. He says, pray this way, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That means may your name be honored and lifted up. Uh, and 
so they deny that Jesus is the Christ or the Son of God. He's he's a he's a different kind of of, of being. They they say, but uh, the, what the Bible says is when you have a Christian who denies that Jesus is the Christ, what what's the consequence? It says that man is a liar. It doesn't say he lied. It says he's a liar. It's talking about his character. The character of a man who would say that Jesus is not God because he can't understand or he can't make it fit together is uh, is a liar. John says the heretic's theology is not defective. It is diabolical. That is what John is saying. The fundamental doctrinal test of professing Christians concerns his view of the person of Jesus. When we think about Unitarians or Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons and many clergymen in mainline denominations and seminaries and so forth. What the problem is, they do not believe the claims of Jesus Christ. He is the Christ. Why don't they believe it? Well, we're told that they don't believe it because of what's happening. We can't have fellowship with the Father if we do not confess the Son. Only the Son can reveal the Father to man. Only the Son can bring us to the Father. Only the Son can testify who the Father is in regards to our sins. What we're told is that God actually loves us. The fact that God loves sinners sometimes is really a shock to people. And it was a shock to the Pharisees during Jesus' life and ministry. They couldn't get over how he treated people. For example, the woman caught in adultery or the woman who was washed his feet with her tears and so forth. They could not get that. They thought, in fact, the, the, the Pharisee who was hosting him at dinner said of the woman who was washing his feet with her tears, he said, this is not a holy man. If he was a holy man, he wouldn't let this woman touch him because he would know who she was and he would know the kind of woman she was. He should not let her touch him. So they deny that Jesus is the Christ, the Son. But what we see in Scripture is that he is like the Father. Remember in John 3.16, who does it begin with? Whose desire was it to send Jesus into the world? God himself, the Father. So this isn't the Son talking the Father into saving people. It's the Son responding to the Father's direction to go into the world and to become the Savior of the world, which he did. And he stood in our place and took the penalty for our sin. So to uh, belittle Jesus Christ is probably the worst thing you could possibly do because he is the one that gives us this relationship with the Father. He's the one who explains the Father to us, and he is the one who brings us to the Father because it's only through him, faith in him, that we could come to the Father. Faith is trusting who Jesus is and what Jesus has promised, who the Father is and who the Father promised to so we have faith in the Godhead. We have faith in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we live our lives out in faith. Whatever they say to us when they give us instruction, because, for example, you have in, in 1 Peter chapter 4, it says, the end of all things has drawn near. Therefore, there's something you should do. In other words, there's, there are implications to the Word of God. We're told that all over the place. Every time you see a therefore, therefore you should ask the question, what is it therefore? Because it's a, it's a conclusion. It's telling you this is, a re this is what you should, ought to do because of this. Because this is true about God, this is what you ought to do. And, um, and so this tells us the commandments of God. The section before this, he talks about how keeping the commandments of God is the only way you can tell if a person loves God. When I first read that, I thought, wow, that's, that's, that is kind of an amazing statement. But that's exactly what he says. The thing that proves you love God is you keep his commandments. And if you don't keep his commandments and you say 
that you have a relationship with him, you are lying. It isn't true. You can't have a relationship with God without obeying his commandments. Why is that? Well, because of who he is. He is the father of glory. He's the creator and sustainer of all things. And it is him that we are to obey. We are to have confidence in him because of what he tells us, because of who he is. And then then what he tells us becomes so important to us. We want to confess the truth. All of us know we're failures. I used to quote uh, Jack Miller, who said, cheer up, you're worse than you think. But God loves you more than you could even imagine. And the fact is, we all know that. We're all well aware that we're broken and that we don't, we're not perfect people. We're not saved. We're not Christians because we've been perfect and we've kept all of God's commandments. But this is what we must do. We must obey his commandments if we're going to show the fact that we love him. This is what will show people that we love him. And then in Acts 13, verse 38, I think it is, he says, I give you a new commandment. You remember the new commandment? You love one another the way I love you. By this, he says, by this, by you loving one another, all will know that you are my disciples. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? Because we really want people to know we're the disciples of Jesus, but we can put up little signs and send out letters and do all kinds of things, and it doesn't mean they're going to believe it. But when they see us loving each other, he, Jesus says, they'll know that you are his disciples, because this this is the earmark of the discipleship of Jesus Christ, because we're becoming like him. So we can't have fellowship with the Father if we do not confess the Son. In John one eighteen, it says, Only the Son can reveal the Father to man. Nobody else can. In John 14.6, he says, Only the Son can bring us to the Father. He brought us to the Father. I, I, this is probably the earliest thing that I was ever aware of in my relationship with God, that Jesus Christ had come into the world so that we could know him. That's what the whole message of Hebrews is about, that the Father sent the Son into the world so that the world could come to know who he is. And it's only by knowing who he is that we come to have salvation. Uh, we need to be careful that we're not being deceived. And he gives us two safeguards here for not being deceived. And here they are. The first one is the word which you have heard from the beginning. You have to have the word of God in your heart and in your life. And secondly, he says, the anointing which you received with him or from him. What, what anointing did you receive from him? Well, we received the Holy Spirit. That's why he poured the Spirit out, he said, was to anoint us so that we would be able to think the thoughts of God and understand what the Spirit is saying about who he is. And uh, he introduced us to the Father. He revealed the Father to us. And so we have this clear understanding of who he is. That's why some people have had experiences where they don't know why they understood it in a certain way. They don't understand how the light went on and they, they realized what was going on. Well, it was because you have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit opens your eyes and he opens your heart so that you can know and love the Father as you should. And this is what he's called us to. And so we are not to be deceived. We are to be uh, clear about our commitment to, to the Father and to the Son because of what God has done. He sent his son into the world so that his son could show us. But guess what? Now what he's doing, this is the, this is the new thing, is that God is displaying his love for the world through our love for each other. That's how the world sees that he loves us, is they see that we love one another. And it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to love one another because there's all kinds of reasons to pull back and not to love fellow believers. We're told that... Uh, God's purpose is to that his son would be the firstborn among many brethren. What that means is the son would be in a family that's so large 
And he's the firstborn, the primogenitor, which means the uh, chief person in this family. And yet he is surrounded by a multitude of people, billions of people now, we're told, uh, that are in the kingdom of God. And that's because God desires for his son to be exalted. He desires for his son to be loved and appreciated and exalted and lifted up. And this is, this is how we know when we see the glory of Christ, when the Father displays the glory of Christ to us, it draws us to worship. If you know, it's interesting. We were in a church when I was going to seminary. They brought this couple, their whole family in, and they were with Wycliffe. And their desire was to teach us a new way of worshiping. What had happened, they had gotten with some people. It was obvious to me that were the kind of people I grew up with. They just they had how to praise God, how to worship, how to do this, how to do that. And so they taught us all these things. And I thought, you know, in one moment, one just one moment of the Holy Spirit opening your eyes to the glory of Christ would outdo that a thousand times. Because nothing like that, that the Holy Spirit opens your eyes and you see the glory of Christ. And sometimes it's, it's in a way, I remember when uh, Vena Flesher was healed. It was overwhelming to me because I really did assume she was going to die. When I got to the hospital, there was probably five to eight different uh, highway patrol cars with blood in the back to, to, because she was so low on blood, and they were trying to you know, keep her alive for a little while. And they didn't have any, they had no options. They didn't have any way of, of bringing her out of this. And we, as a church, went down there. We, it was uh, probably the majority of our church were, were down there. And the lady says, this room's too small for you, but I'll put you in a room back here, and you can do whatever you want to do. And so we, we went back there. I guess she knew we were going to pray because that's what we did. We prayed, and, and it was a, a wonderful time because we manifested our love for, for each other. We realized that we were a part of the body of Christ and that Christ was our Lord. And we prayed, and we asked him to have mercy upon her. This was her, I think, uh, was it her third child? Third child and third or fourth. Might have been the fourth child. It was her last child, anyway. Mm-hmm. She, but he was born, and his. they, they came out and told us that he's not going to make it because we can't stop the bleeding. She just, she just keeps uh, bleeding and bleeding, and so they didn't know what to do. So we go in a room and start praying, just asking God. There wasn't a medical expert with us. Nobody told us what, why we needed, why she needed, what she needed. We just begin to pray that God would step in and do something supernatural. And that's exactly what he did. And that's the, that is the most wonderful kind of fellowship. When your hearts are united and you're asking the Father, your Father, the Father of all of you, from your heart, what you want to see him do. And he answered our prayers. And it shook us to the core. It was amazing. And uh, this, is what, this is what God... Uh, wants to do in our lives. He he is he wants us to show the world what it means to be loved by God and what it is to love God. Because, see, that's what the Son did. When the Son came into the world, he revealed who the Father really was. But now we are the ones who reveal who the Father is as we love each other. But if we're not loving each other, forget it. Please don't tell them you're a Christian if you don't love fellow Christians, <laughs> because that would just mess everything up. No, just love one another. And when they see the fact that you love one another, it is going to grab their attention. It's going to reveal Christ to them. This is the Christ that we served. And uh, so we want to continue to do that. We want to see him working. Pray that God will, would open the eyes of people to see the truth of the gospel and turn to him in faith. And expect that God's going to put people in your life that have that great need, and you're going to want to pray for it. 
you're going to want to call upon his name and believe him for doing this. And pray for for, for all of us that we would be ready and willing to uh, share the gospel with people who desperately need it, because he's going to give us the opportunity to do that. I don't think you have to worry about that. We pray for it, but we don't have to worry about it because we know that's exactly what he wants to do. He, he so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And, and Jesus tells us, well, the reason he gave us eternal life was he wants us to know him. See, he wants us to know him. He wants us to have the ability to actually know him intimately and to understand him. And so this is what was going to happen. When people turn to Christ, they're going to know Christ, and they're going to, their life is going to be changed. And their whole value system is going to be changed. So remember to pray for that. Pray that we would be faithful, even in these days, even when we don't know if we can meet together or not. We know that, that God in heaven is watching over us, and he knows exactly what's going on. And we can love each other from a distance, you know. We can actually have a, a heart for each other. Uh, you can talk to people that you know are suffering and simply try to encourage them and lift them up and tell them how much Christ loves them. I don't know if you caught it on that song, but what he's talking about, what that song is talking about, it's uh, it was it won the some award. I forget what it is now, but anyway, it uh, and that was Dolly Parton with him. <laughs> but what they were singing about was. The Bible claims that Jesus is always with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. You can't get in any situation where he is not there. And yet what he is saying in this song is, I lived so many parts of my life where I didn't see Jesus at all. Where was he? And then the refrain comes out, there was Jesus, because he began to show himself to him. God wants you to know that he's with you. He wants, Jesus wants you to know that he's with you. And he wants you to know that he's the most precious gift you could give to anybody is simply by telling them how to enter into a relationship with him. Uh, it's, it's the most blessed thing. You don't have to be an expert. You just have to be sold on Jesus. You have to have your heart completely changed and filled with the truth of who you are in Christ. And so that's what I want to pray for right now. Our Father, we thank you so much for your, your gracious words. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for you, for your love for us, that you would send your Son into the world to save us from an impossible situation. We were so affected and stained with sin, and yet Jesus came, and he was there, and he died for us, and he was raised for us. And now we have a living Savior that we can trust and believe and rely upon. And so we pray that you would do that in our hearts. Please give us a new lease on life, that we would begin to uh, look to you and trust you and see what you're doing by putting people in our life that we can share the gospel with. Father, we thank you for that. We thank you. We don't have to be uh, geniuses to do this. We simply have to be uh, ready and willing to allow you to empower us to do what you want us to do. And we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.